Knowledge is power, and we are all about empowering the mamas of the world. In each episode, we will unravel and interpret the latest research and evidence-based practices for pregnancy, postpartum, and motherhood. As mums and researchers ourselves, we have experienced firsthand the overwhelming complexity of information, myths, and those classic old wives' tales. I'm Dr. Renee White. And I'm Dr. Mika Petucci. And, and this, this is The Science of, of Motherhood. motherhood. Hello and welcome to The Science of Motherhood podcast. This is episode 52 and this is the voice of your co-host, Dr. Mika Petucci. And while I have been on my beautiful maternity leave, I need to make a point to say what an amazing job Dr. Renee White has done in nurturing and nourishing and building this podcast into something that is very highly downloadable, downloaded and extremely useful. And I just wanted to make a big point and a big fuss to say what an amazing job you've done. And I'm so proud of you. You know, listening to these when I haven't been on them, I felt like I have a conversation with you and I hope that's what our listeners feel too. It's, you know, when motherhood can be lonely, it's just like, here's Renee and you're very natural at this too. So well done. It's um, it's lovely to be back. And today, oh my gosh, new year, new you. Not really. <laughs> We're just accepting who we are and moving forward. We have got an episode for you today. We have and we have Nicole Belsner, and she is a researcher in environmental medicine. She used to be a naturopath or is qualified as a naturopath and an acupuncturist, to say, with 15 years of experience. And she moved into becoming a building biologist when she noticed her patients' illnesses were not improving from diet and lifestyle modifications and worked out that it was actually the health hazards in their home, their environment that was causing them to get sick. She is the author of the best-selling book, Healthy Home, Healthy Family. She's done columns, Body and Soul, and is regularly consulted by the media to talk about health hazards in the built environment. She has over 30 years' experience with lecturing at tertiary institutions and has published several papers in peer-reviewed journals. She single-handedly established the building biology industry in Australia and has established the Australian College of Environmental Studies back in 1999 to educate people on the health hazards in the built environment. Holy moly, she has done a lot. She has ticked a lot of boxes and her passion for awareness around this topic, I think, is second to none, which is why we were just itching to get her on and today's episode is a bit of a, a starting point in terms of talking about issues like mold in the house and what you need to do about it I think proper cleaning of it identification of it being an issue and then we move on to more simple things like taking your shoes off before you come in home in terms of not bringing toxins into your home and things you can do lots of gold and goodies in here and we hope that you enjoy it as much as we did Hello and welcome to the podcast. It is my absolute pleasure to introduce Nicole Belsmart to the Science of Motherhood. Thank you for having me here. Oh, we're so excited and I have to say it's a very exciting moment for me. I've been a big fan of your work for a very long time. I can't remember exactly how I got onto it, but your book Healthy at Home is a Bible for me and has been such a great resource. And I can't wait to share all of this information with our listeners. I can't wait to share this information either. I'm very passionate <laughs> about this, being a mother myself. Great. And I think it'll be good for Renee to know that I'm not just making this stuff up when I tell her all these different things. Yeah, for, very- I, I guess for all those playing home, we've just said off air that Mika is trying to contain herself very well. She's absolutely fangirling it um, at the moment. She may need a clean set of undies after the episode. (laughs) But so I am definitely a newbie to all of this. I'm like, you know, I'm a biochemist. I understand, you know, the basics around toxins and, and, and things like that. But I would I have to say that Mika is definitely at the hardcore level and she schools me in lots of things. And I think some of the most robust discussions that we've ever had as part of our business, Mika, you might agree, is around, 
you know, products and things that we would be integrating within our own business when we had our meal delivery service, you know, the containers that we were using um, for the food. And, you know, I think I would just be like, on my merry way. Yep. Okay. We're going to get those. And then I check in with Mika and she's like, absolutely not. Like, not a chance. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. It's not happening. And I'm like, what's wrong with it? And she would then educate me around the potential hazards of the plastics that we were using and things like that. And I was like, wow, okay. I did not appreciate that. And now here you are, Nicole, the fountain of wisdom and knowledge and the root of all the robust discussions. <laughs> oh, my God, that's pressure. <laughs> that Vicar and I have been having. So I am, I'm almost going to take a back seat in this interview because I think I'm just going to observe. And I may, like, you know, some listeners think and ask maybe quite naive questions. So I'm going to let Mika take oh, Renee, it. there's no such thing as a silly question. Oh, I don't know. I've probably come up no, with one No, no, no. It's great. I think so <laughs> many of our audience will be in the same position, but I forgot about all those fights just quickly. I'm not <laughs> usually one to fight or argue, but I was just like, no, that's not happening. But let's start at the start. Nicole, we would love for you to tell us who you are and how you got to this point in your career and what you're doing. So I started out as a naturopath and acupuncturist and um, did further training in TCM Guangzhou Hospital in 92 to do more training in acupuncture. And over the eight years of doing university, I figured, you know, I was obsessed with cancer as a 16-year-old and used to read a lot of Bernard Jensen's work on colonic irrigation, you know, as a 16-year-old, as you do. And wasn't in, I was a violinist too at that time, so I was a bit of a nerd and I just went, the C word was used a lot at home with um, my parents, family, friends who died from cancers and I thought there must be a reason why people get cancers. Like the medical system's very much heavy on diagnoses but there must be a root cause. So I really dedicated the last two to three decades of my life looking at root causes of illness and but it wasn't until I started noticing many of my patients wouldn't get better with the treatment I could provide as an acupuncturist and naturopath that changing their diets wasn't enough. And many of them over time would say, what do you think of the mould? I'm sleeping near a metre panel. There's a high voltage transmission line. I'm going, you know, I spent eight years at uni. We didn't learn any of this. So it wasn't until I moved into our first home we bought in Warrandyte that we both developed insomnia, sleep disturbances and then 12 months later, I fell pregnant and miscarried and subsequently had 10 miscarriages in this house. And um, as I started to reflect, I realised everything went pear-shaped. When we moved into this beautiful half an acre on the river in Warrandyte, it was lovely. My in-laws would refer to it as the B&B, but there was something really wrong. So I realised we were sleeping near a metre panel on the other side, adjacent to the metre panel. I had a dowser come in and he said there's significant G-paddock stress running under your bed. There was a bee's wasp nest just outside the bedroom, which was symbolic of G-paddock stress. We were on a T intersection, so there was high levels of traffic-related air pollutants. When I started to measure noxious gases like carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, um, would start to elevate a lot in our room and took hours to dissipate before the peak hour traffic would kick in. And, of course, Parks Victoria used to come and spray our blackberry bushes on our block of land regularly with Garlon and Roundup and all that sort of stuff. And, um, you know, there was so – when you couldn't see or smell what was going on, but there, when you started to ask questions, it became really obvious so I said to my husband at the time, we need to get out of this room and go to the back bedroom and um, did fell pregnant. I fell pregnant naturally. I didn't. We didn't qualify for IVF because I got pregnant easily and um, then fell pregnant naturally with twins and the rest is history and started to research. Like I spent, my uh, husband at the time was just frustrated. He said, why are you spending all this time researching for nothing? Like it's wasting all your time. And I said, I just want to know why people get sick. I want to know if we can't have kids, I want to know why and I'll make it my life mission because I'm a dog at a bone. There is always a reason. It's just that people don't ask enough questions and Health practitioners are not trained to take proper exposure histories and that's half the battle because the timeline is often very clear as to when issues go pear-shaped and when health problems go wrong. Oh, thank you so much for sharing your journey and I also want to add in that you've got your own 
college, the Australian College of Environmental Studies, which is such an excellent resource for people. Would you like to tell us a bit more about that as well? Yeah, forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> that old chestnut. <laughs> that's so, that you've that's done. I was doing all this research and he said, why do you start teaching this? I mean, at the time I was lecturing at university for about 15 years at Melbourne College of Natural Medicine. I think it's Endeavour now at Southern School of Natural Therapies. And I started realising the information I was passing on to my naturopathic students was really valuable. Now, more interested in that than the subject I was teaching nutrition. and. Um, I then developed or started the Australian College of Environmental Studies in 1999. It became a registered training organisation in 2005. And since then, I've, I've offered nationally accredited training in building biology, mould testing, electromagnetic field testing and feng shui. So it's really been, and I'm constantly researching this off my own back as I'm teaching students, okay, this is the impact of water damage buildings on people's health. This is the latest research on electromagnetic fields. And it's. Um, I realise I'm closer to understanding three decades down the track why people are sick than I ever was when I did my training. So uh, that's where I spent. I'm the principal of the college, and of course, I started the building biology industry. So, mm. oh my gosh, I can hear so much passion in you describing all of this. And I think, for me, I think it, this is definitely such a missing piece of the puzzle when it comes to our health and well-being. And it's, I think, in future decades, we'll look back and it'll seem so obvious. And I'm just, I'm so thankful for the work that you do. For my, you know takings from it personally but also that's what I'm wanting to share or we are wanting to share with our audience today so I think you know alerting them to why their environment matters and how it can impact your health and how we can take the most simple sort of effective steps to mediating that if needed and making it healthier and what the benefits might be but I did want to start with a quote because that's just who I am from a marine biologist in the U.S. Rachel Carson who I remember reading this great quote lady do it. Oh, I was doing some extra training over in Cape Cod, this amazing marine biology laboratories. It was an incredible experience. And I remember seeing her quote in the garden that I was in, and it just has always stuck with me. And I just, I have a true passion for this area of research. The who's who of pesticides is therefore of concern to us all. If we are going to live so intimately with these chemicals, eating and drinking them, taking them into the very marrow of our bones, we had better know something about their nature and their power oh I sorry I love that and it's so true and I don't think it's done enough and that's why we have got the wonderful you Nicole here to tell us all about why this is important why do we want to look at our environment for mums with newborn babies who are spending a lot of time at home day in day out what are some of the main things we need to be aware of okay so the why is the past three decades has been a massive shift in our exposures to environmental chemicals, electro-man-made, electromagnetic fields, etc. Several events happen conclude at the same time, which result in systemic failures across multiple industries that increase the popular global population's exposure to these hazards. And in terms of mold, that's probably the one that we do most work is to test mouldy buildings. And we've become a lot clearer now how mould can instigate asthma and allergies. That's well known and well established in the scientific literature that it can cause asthma and allergies and chronic respiratory tract infections, colds and flus that keep coming back and drag on for weeks and months and are not responsive to treatment. So they're the first things I look for in exposure history when I'm going to someone's home to see if it's making them sick, which is what we do as building biologists. Asthma, allergies chronic respiratory tract infections that can include upper respiratory tract infections, hay fever, sinus, earaches to things like chronic tonsillitis I see a lot in children and, of course, bronchitis and, worst-case scenario, pneumonia, which I've seen in a lot of my, my clients as well. Now, we also, there's a growing body of evidence that mould can also impact people's immune system by impacting inflammation we know one in four people are genetically susceptible, that they cannot create antigens or antibodies to mould. And in these patients, they don't tend to get the asthma and allergies. They tend to get chronic fatigue-like symptoms. And often, often they appear to be misdiagnosed for autoimmune disorders like multiple sclerosis. I see quite a few women with MS that start in a water-damaged building or after a flood event that results in high levels of mould in their home 
which is, um, you know, an interesting coincidence. There's very little data on this, very little research on this. Hopefully that will change in the next five to ten years. However, it's, you know, a long time coming. So that's a big one is chronic fatigue-like symptoms, poor concentration, poor memory, brain fog, missing words mid-sentence, headaches, fibromyalgia, muscular aches and pains, I seem to be very common in, in a subgroup of the population in these water damaged buildings. So that's really a big part of the work we do. Now, the reason why I think mould has become far more prevalent now is because we replace copper pipe, our water pipes from copper to flexible braided water hoses. So if you look under your sink, you can see that silver looking snake that you can bend. It's easy to install, etc. And these things are splitting. They're the number one cause of water events and insurance claims in Australia, accounting for over $320 million every year. So they only have a service life of five years. If you know that that flexible braided water hose is more than five years old, next time you get a licensed plumber in, replace it because it's a very common cause of water events. So that's number one. Number two, we're building really tight homes now, six, five, six-star energy-rated homes which uh, often have poor ventilation, the, the homes have not considered the movement of water vapour. So many of these homes, you'll have condensation when people move in, suddenly they've got condensation on their windows, in their bathrooms, because the house is not designed to house humans, because you're breathing out three litres of water vapour per day. In fact, each person in the house is equivalent to around 10 litres of water vapour per day. So if you have three people in a one or two bedroom apartment, it's not designed for that. So you're going to have water dripping off the walls. Now, as soon as you have liquid water there for more than 48 hours, you've got microbial growth. That's it for mould. As soon as you have a water event, if you've overflowed the bathroom or the laundry trough, or you've got a split flexible braided water hose, if you don't dry that within 48 hours, within 72 hours, there's going to be microbial growth. Now, the thing with mould that people need to understand is that fungal spores are everywhere. They're nature's greatest decomposers. They're there from the Arctic to the Antarctica. They're on every surface and they're incredibly resilient and adaptive to any um, circumstance. So in a healthy home, you're going to have up to 500 spores of fungi per centimetre squared in a normal healthy home. So the issue with a mouldy home is not the mould. The issue with a mouldy home is growth and growth happens with moisture. So the key to a healthy home is a dry home. That's why it's so important if you have any liquid water events, any plumbing issue, any drainage problems, that they are dry within 48 hours or you'll start supporting growth. And what happens with growth is the fungi starts to utilise the moisture, release enzymes, release gases called microbial VOCs or fungi farts that you smell <laughs> as, as um, a damp, musty odour. So if you're smelling any damp, musty odour, that's a massive red flag that there's microbial growth because they release those odours to kill off their competitors in order to start decomposing your house. That's what happens in mouldy homes is they're decomposing your house and you're in the way. <laughs> These chemicals are some of the deadliest known to man. So mycotoxins that are on the spores and the hyphae, like trichothecenes, for example, from stachybotrys, uh, you know, liver can cause liver cancers, can cause death. Um, they're very, very toxic. And that's why it's so important that you make sure that you maintain the house, you have clean gutters, the stormwater system is working well, that you, you know, reduce the water vapour, that when you have showers, you don't have high levels of humidity. If you're getting any condensation when you have a shower or bath and the ventilation is not adequate, you either need to open windows if you're in Melbourne or you need to and or have really good exhaust fan that exhausts that water vapour, not into the roof, but out to atmosphere. So it's ducted out to the outside to reduce the water vapour. If you live in a humid environment like Central Coast, Sydney, uh, Queensland, then you're in an environment where mould is actively trying to decompose your house and there is a big cost to living there that a lot of people don't think about. You know, they go on holidays, they turn the air conditioner off and the air conditioner is a dehumidifier, so it's pulling moisture out of the air, which is great. But as soon as you turn it off, that humidity increases and if it's more than 70% humidity for more than 48 hours, the spores sitting in the household dust that are sitting on the surfaces are going to use the humidity, the water vapour in the air to grow. So you don't need a liquid water event to cause a significant mould problem in a house. It could just be that you live in a humid environment, it's utilising the moisture from the air 
So in these homes, if you go to Europe on your one and only European trip uh, for four weeks, you either keep that air conditioning going or you have a centralised house ducted dehumidification system that's intelligent, that kicks in after 60% and stops after 40%. Otherwise, you're going to come back, probably come back to a mild box. Oh, my gosh. That's very scary numbers there with mould and... I've had mould in old rental properties before and I think when you know a bit more about it, it's not just gross as mould. It's like I think you know, how do we get rid of this and I think that's a big issue too is that often people are cleaning the mould the way they think is best, which actually feeds the mould. I love all your work and research on this area in terms of what how you can actually clean it and remediate it depending what scale it is on because obviously if it's a huge scale, you can call people in to come and help with that. How do you remove it? I would, like what's the best way? Like I'm just thinking we live in a relatively old house and as you were saying, you know, if there's condensation in your bathroom and you're having your showers, like yes, yes, there is. <laughs> like how, how, what's the best way to remove mould? Like say, you know, around the window trims or something like that if you can see it. Yeah. Okay. So the first thing to deal with any mould problem is to get to the root cause to prevent it happening or getting worse. And that is to find out where the moisture is coming from. Is it high levels of water vapour because of inadequate ventilation in your showers? Like what would be happening if you're getting condensation and the ventilation is not adequate? It's not pulling out enough water vapour out of that room. Um, so what you may need, if you're in a rental, you're not going to get a plumber to come in and install a really high-fangled $400 fan that's ducted to the atmosphere. So you should just get a portable dehumidifier mm -hmm. that's appropriate for that size and make sure the dehumidifier is on every time you have a bath or shower to pull out the moisture and then you empty that tray. That's a simple Band-Aid approach. It's very effective. Once you have visible mould on a surface, the rule of thumb is depending, it depends on the porosity of the material and the condition. So if it's gyprock, for example, plasterboard, and it's a little bit less than the size of a piece of paper, then you put on a mask, ideally protect your eyes, and then just vacuum it, followed by a microfiber cloth, followed by vacuuming it. That's how you, what we call a HEPA sandwich. If it's more than the size of a piece of paper, it should be cut out and discarded. So generally when we have a porous material such as textiles, furnishings, clothes, um, shoes, gyprock, et cetera, that has visible mould, that's what we call condition three, which is visible mould, you discard it. You shouldn't be cleaning it. People who are cleaning shoes with mould, if you're doing it inside, you'll contaminate the room you're in. You're going to get high levels of fungal particulate that can make some of my clients sick for months after cleaning one pair of shoes. Um, it can instigate an asthma attack. It's very dangerous. You should actually get rid of and discard any textiles and leather or porous material that has visible mould on it. That's the rule of thumb. If it's a semi-porous material or a, a non-porous material like plastic or metal or, you know, polyurethane or sealed timber, for example, rule of thumb is to use a HEPA sandwich. Vacuum it with a, a good vacuum cleaner that's fitted with a HEPA filter and then follow through with a slightly damp microfiber cloth, which I'd normally soak in a bit of detergent because it emulsifies the, the uh, uh, organic material on the surface, which the mould is growing on, and then followed by vacuum. So vacuum, wipe with a microfiber cloth vacuum. That's how you get rid of visible mould off a semi-porous or a non-porous material. But be careful that you have goggles on or glasses. Ideally, you need to wear a full-face respirator, which who's going to spend $400 on that? We do. <laughs> But you need to cover your eyes because many of the people I trained with in the US two decades ago ended up with these weird thyroid-related diseases and autoimmune disorders because they, even though they were wearing a respirator, they didn't cover their eyes where the spores got in and they got really sick. Mm, yes. Oh, my gosh. Mould. <laughs> we don't have any mould, aside from like a little bit in the bathroom in this house that we're in now, but it's definitely... I remember having it at an old rental on the roof because there was a roof leak and it was black mould coming through mm. and trying to get the real estate agent to realise it was a problem. She just told me to clean it and I was like seven months pregnant and um, you know how quickly we got out of there from what we saw the mould and I think it seems like now as well with the governing bodies that that's recognised more for renters and giving them sort of options in terms yes. of what they can and can't put up with, um, which is great. It's a really good step in the right direction. But I think the lesson is that, you know, if you are going to remove mould, do it properly, seek an expert and avoidance. I think, like you said, having windows open. So when we, like 
you know, I think after reading your book, I now, I clean the exhaust fan itself and the cover and I always have it on. I leave it on for 10 minutes after I've finished my shower. I right. squeegee my shower. Right. I nag my partner to squeegee the shower. And if <laughs> it, I go into it afterwards because it's so important. We Our bathrooms in this house don't actually have a, a window to the outside. It's very weird. And so I'm always opening the bedroom windows. To, I have the windows open all through winter. Like, I don't care. I can put clothes on myself. Ventilation is a huge thing. But I think it is these small things of cleaning the filters or the fan, squeegeeing, removing that liquid that just sits there all day. Like, I never used to do that Yes. Um, in terms of prevention. And that's the main reason why you have a bit of mould in the grout, et cetera, of your showers, et cetera. The only reason why it's there is because the liquid water is sitting there for more than 48 hours. Hopefully it's just going to be a small little mould problem. shouldn't be a risk. So once you identify a hazard like mould, you then have to assess the risk because everyone's got a bit of mould in the bathroom. Is that going to cause health problems? Well, for most people, probably not, unless it's the Titanic iceberg. So you're just seeing the tip there and then inside the wall cavity is a massive amount of microbial growth that's coming through the power points, getting into the indoor airspace. That would be problematic. So the way I would assess risk is ask my clients, do you have asthma, allergies or chronic fatigue-like symptoms? Have you been diagnosed with an autoimmune disorder? Has it got worse or has it been has it developed since you moved into the house? Has the house experienced any water damage? Are you better when you're away from the home? And if they respond yes to that, then I know that you definitely need to get the house tested to see how bad the problem is. Mm, I think that's a really interesting point you make about actually if you leave the home and go away on a holiday or go somewhere else for the weekend and and noticing those differences in your health or sleep patterns. Because in Melbourne, being the allergy capital, I feel like it's just like, okay, you live in Melbourne, you've got allergies, it's normal, it's so common that it seems normal, but if you get to the root cause. And and the problem there with Melbourne is because we're between mountains, so it's really contained. The airflow is is quite poor. A lot of the industry from the western suburbs sticks around the airflow in the eastern suburbs. And because you've got the Dandenongs and the Massanon Ranges, a lot of those pollens and allergens are hanging out in the air. So many people develop allergies when they move to Melbourne for that reason. Unfortunately, and of course I provide lots of tips in my books, if you've got pollen allergies, you need to keep the windows closed. You don't put your washing outside, all of those simple things. Yeah. So much to think about already. And I will just quickly share a story. So I've got cousins up in Queensland and they were living in unknown to them at the time, a house that used to be a meth lab and it was sort of, you know, very basic, (laughs) an X one. And when they moved in, so it's my cousin, they had three children at the time, they all were sick all of the time, like constantly sick. And it took them so long. My mum was telling me and I was like, it's got to be the house. And then the mattresses ended up getting really yucky and mouldy as well. But as soon as they moved out, this is a very superficial telling of the story for time, but they were sick. They were sick all the time and always at the doctors with various, you know, different ailments. And it was never once said to them, what's going on? The whole family of five is always sick. And as soon as they moved out, gone. And it's just a little example of how I think important you're in. And that's obviously an extreme example from what they were living in. And, and you don't know that when you're moving into these places either, which is really scary. And I'm sure we might not deep, deep dive down there too much, but I just, that always scared me and I'm so happy that they're out of that house and somewhere and they're all healthy and well. But I wouldn't mind if we just sort of come back into the home and maybe move away from mould. I feel like that's something that people are aware of and I think you've highlighted reasons of why to remove it properly or to get some help and what a serious issue it is. I'm just thinking about, you know, if you're a mum with a newborn baby and maybe older kids at home, you know, you spend a lot of time in the house. We talked before if you have pollen that you, don't open the windows, but if that's not an issue, you know, can we talk about air ventilation and water quality or where you might think it's an important place to start to improve the health of the home in easy, achievable steps? Like what do we need to think about and do or avoid or not do? Sure. Okay. Can I just go back to that point on mess? If you know, if you've been in a mess um, <laughs> area, I mean, this is a really important because they're thinking 30% or more of rentals in Sydney are actually impacted by methamphetamines or vaping. Oh, yeah. oh wow. You only have to smoke three times in that house to contaminate that house. It takes very little to do it. 
highly well worth getting the surface samples, I mean, to test it. It's easy to do yourself. You're doing surface testing. Um, I would absolutely recommend before you move into a house, test it for meth and look for signs of visible mould, odour, et cetera. In fact, one of the best things you can do is to actually door knock everybody in that street and find that old lady that knows the whole history of everyone's relationship and every divorce and affair that's happened in the street, yeah. as well as the flood event and the... Beryl. The is, her, name is, her name is Beryl, 100%. Smith. <laughs> Well, that's such, I've never thought to do that, and I feel like for renters it's so hard because it's such a competitive market. You're just happy to get in, but oh. this is such an important step before Absolutely you it is. Yourself, especially if there's little people involved. And definitely. So with meth as opposed to mould, the difference would be in the history is psychosis. Their mental health is really they're, they're erratic, they're irrational, especially unfortunately she had the kids in the house. So often, you know, when they've moved into a meth house and they don't know, it's often this kids is off, off the chart, all of a sudden they're diagnosed with ADHD, they were quite normal before they moved in here and now they're erratic, you cannot rationalise with them. So the basically what they're describing is in a meth home is like what a user would get from withdrawing from the drug. It's the same mm -hmm. symptoms. Also, they have headaches, severe headaches. They get psychosis and they have skin rashes. So they're the three I look for in the history since they've moved into the house where the meth is, needs to be tested. Testing is actually simple. I mean, for 150 bucks, you can get 10 samples. I mean, instantly, it's, you just sample and it gives you a result. So I would say that's really critical before you move in apart from other issues that I've mentioned in my book, there's a chapter on checklist to check before you move in. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I've definitely read through that and looked at it. And I was much happier in the home we're in now, mould-free, aside from those little bathroom ones. I, know, I haven't checked behind the walls. I want to mention a couple of little topics to start with, I think, and, and maybe you can decide which one you'd like to begin with in terms of mums and babies. So I think we've mentioned, like, air filter, a water filter, keeping on the water side of things, plastic bottles plastic baby bottles is something I would definitely love to discuss with you yep. and the safety of BPA free plastic bottles and we are not wanting to add to your mental load or your to-do list mummers we're just trying to be an awareness of what what is what you need to know when using these products and I always say to my family just in general like just because it's in the supermarket doesn't mean it's safe exactly right Shampoo. I was, yeah, this BPA free thing got me, got me real good. Oh, I could talk for an hour alone on it. I'm so passionate and I just, it's not communicated effectively, but just in terms of general products like shampoo, conditioner, dishwashing liquid, laundry detergent, just because it's in the supermarket, it is not safe. I think we as a population expect that someone has done the testing and we are safe. It is not regulated. Like washing yeah. detergent shouldn't be green. That's not good. That's not natural. That's not healthy. And there's, yes. I'm sorry, I'm getting on my high horse, but there's so I'm much. I'm going to interview you now. <laughs> I'm sorry, Nicole. That's it's all right. That's good. Green. Love it. Out there. And I think, you know, I, I, when I bring up some of these things with different people, people often think that I'm crazy. And I get like, oh, that's, she's into that. And I was like, I just. And I, she's a hippie. Fine. She's Everyone's a hippie. Into an opinion, but. I think if a mum chooses to use plastic bottles, I think she needs to know what is going on and then if it's her choice to keep using them or not, she knows. It's an informed choice. Yeah. I think that's what we're trying to get into. Yeah. Um, is that a topic you'd be happy to, to jump into? Yeah. And I think that's a good place to start is firstly to get the realisation to consumers that they can't make an informed choice because many of the products they're buying have not been assessed for safety. The system, the way in which we regulate chemicals is we put it into the market without requirements for testing um, and then it takes years for researchers to prove if it's a problem. Asbestos took 50 years to prove, even though there was a history of asbestos in miners from hundreds of years ago and potters, for example. Lead was another one that took decades. Uh, benzene in petrol. You know, there's so many examples in history that's taken decades because it's really the burden of proof isn't on manufacturers to prove safety. It's on science to prove that it's actually dangerous and that system is flawed and it doesn't protect consumers. Now, there are things like the REACH Directive in Europe and the Toxic Substance Control Act in the US that are making manufacturers more accountable for what they put onto the market. However, it's got a huge grandfather clause of lots of thousands of chemicals still in use that we know are problematic. 
So if you go into the supermarket hardware store and, and think about probably a lot of these chemicals haven't been tested. Just to give you an idea, there's over 190 million chemicals registered for use in the world's largest database, the Chemical Abstract Service, and every 60 seconds another 20 chemicals are registered. That's 200,000 every week. 90% have never been tested. We know when it looks at regulating these chemicals, they're only looking at one chemical on a group of rats. They're not looking at the synergistic effect of multiple chemicals. You have 30 chemicals in a shampoo. They're only testing one of those chemicals on a group of rats. They give increasing doses to the rodents until 50% die to establish the lethal dose 50. Then they get rid of the rest of the rodents and they write what's called a safety data sheet. That's completely inadequate. This is going to change with time as we've, as, um, we've got bioinformatics and better ways to, to assess these chemicals. But the reality is what we're finding now is that different people are susceptible to different chemicals based on their culture, based on their gene profile. So some people can work in David Jones in, this, in the perfume department for 20 years and have no symptoms. Another person can walk past and get a migraine headache for two days. So the genetic susceptibility varies by tenfold at least. We know that your microbiome, the gut microbiome and the microbiome on your skin is actually probably even more effective at metabolising chemicals than the liver. You know, we've got over a 1,000 bacteria that we now know can mold change the nature of chemicals, even from landing the one that land on your skin. They start changing before it even gets into your body. Like this is an area of research that's exploding now that your lifestyle, your, your actual exposure to these chemicals and the amount of chemicals is also important. So when it comes to mum, go back to basics. As you said, you want to start with take your shoes off before you come in because outside is full of pesticides. We've used hundreds of thousands of tonnes of pesticides throughout the planet. We've got high levels in the polar bear livers where it hadn't been sprayed 15,000 kilometres away. It's basically the distribution is everywhere. So take your shoes up before you come inside. The next one is get rid of the carpets. Rugs are much better. The reason is because carpets are reservoirs for allergens, dust. In fact, what's in the carpet is pretty much most of the hazards. Chemicals, solvents, all your perfumes, your flame retardants, anything that you've sprayed in the air, your dust mite, of course, is the most common cause of allergies, pet dander, human dander, your mould, your fungal particulate, your bacteria. It's the archaeological dig site of the entire house. So I would say when you before you move in, get rid of the carpets because actually if you think about it, every hour you're shedding, each person sheds about 14 to 37 million bacterial genome copies in the air every hour. <laughs> So it's like a forensic for the entire Oh, my house. God. I know. It's extraordinary. <laughs> so the way you deal with dust in your home will determine a lot of the chemicals you're exposed to because a lot of these VOCs, even though they're chemicals, they're often sitting on the dust. So that's the probably the best advice I can give is to reduce the dust load, use a slightly damp microfiber cloth to dust the house, get rid of the dust reservoirs, get rid of the fabric carpets and um, your window dressings are best to have things like, it's so not often I recommend plastic, but, you know, polyester blinds would be a better option that you can clean or, you know, natural cottons, et cetera, that are blinds that go up and down to maximise light coming in. Fabric curtains, not so great. Many of them have mould on one side. And as soon as you open them, you're going to get a massive amount of fungal particulate that you're going to inhale that can make people quite sick. So, thinking about maximising natural light in the house, reducing the dust load as much as possible. Take your shoes off. Um, and then, of course, the dust, as I said. The next one is the vacuum cleaner is really important because that will help to um, capture that dust. And the best vacuum cleaners, which fortunately most of them have now, has a HEPA filter, which is a high-efficiency particulate air filter that will filter down to, you know, less than uh, 0.3 microns. Most allergens start at about 2 microns, like mould spores, for example, pollens, your dust mite, um, and, of course, their faeces, which is where the allergen is. So a good vacuum cleaner will actually filter the air when you use it and help to trap that dust and, of course, always have a bag. I don't like bagless because someone has to clean it and expose themselves to all of that when they're doing it. So a bag vacuum cleaner with a HEPA filter. 
is really important. And that can significantly reduce your exposure to allergens as well as chemicals in the home. The next thing is thinking about what... Well, sorry, can I pause you there, Nicole? Sorry, just on the vacuuming before you jump forward. I remember reading you, I think it was in your book, where you said if you do like a very, you know, a proper vacuum, like where you spend time once a week going over the floor and actually spend time doing it thoroughly, that's what I'm looking for, is much better than like a quick whip over every day, which... Who, as a mum, has time to do that? But my neighbour always says she pulls her non-bag, I know the brand, I'm not going to say it, and does it daily. And I think, oh, I don't have time to do that, but I do it once a week and I do it once a week really thoroughly. And I feel like I'm just going to give mums permission to do that and that's actually better, isn't it? Yes. So if you can do once a week, just do one room where you're spending triple the amount of time, and this is mainly carpets. If you haven't got carpets, it's not a problem where you're actually focusing on really slow with a turbo head. So obviously either something with really good suction head or turbo head that's sucking up and digging into the pile. So that's the third feature of good vacuum cleaner, a HEPA filter, a bag, and a turbo head or a head that has really good sucking force. Otherwise, it's only going to get rid of surface dust. And spend the time in that one room, carpeted room, to really get rid of those allergens. That's going to be more effective doing that once every six weeks than a superficial dust uh, vacuum that's only going to get rid of the surface absolutely so that's important so my daughter has dust mite allergies I got rid of all the carpets and I replace them with rugs to clean the rugs um, you know about two times a year I bring it out into the sun on a hot dry day and beat them or I get a um, occasionally I'll get someone to come and pick them up and to steam clean them in the factory dry them out before they come back I've had quite a few people's homes they got really sick with mould because they got someone in to steam clean their carpets and the carpets didn't dry within 48 hours and now their reservoirs are mould, very high levels of mould, including stachybotrys, which is deadly. So it's very important if you're going to, you're best to dry clean your carpets if you're going to do it in a, a wet weather like this rather than steam clean because the moisture in there may not be able to dry within 48 hours and that's going to cause mould problems. So that's something I definitely recommend. Mm. In terms of cleaning, really go back to basics. Really, the best way to clean a house is a bit of detergent in hot water and a good microfiber cloth, I've got to say. All the rest is just hype. Um, you really don't need toxic cleaning products at all. Ammonia and bleach should never be in a healthy home. Sanitizers should not be in a healthy home. What we've found is that the healthier the home is, the more diverse the bacteria is in the home. So people, we've created environments in Western cultures that bacteria is bad, which is the antithesis of actually the reality of a healthy home. We know in the Amish community where they have no electricity, they don't use chemicals, they use traditional farming methods, no pesticides, that they have one of the lowest rates of asthma and allergies in the world. And it appears to be because they have high levels of diverse bacteria in the house as a result of their exposure to livestock and cows and horses and and animals and pets, and they have big families. The, the more people in the house, the more diverse the bacteria is, as I mentioned before, in the household dust. And that seems to be protective for allergies, especially in the first two years of life and during pregnancy. But, of course, once people are allergic to a cat or a dog, you can't have a cat or a dog in the house. But that makes important. so much sense, though, Nicole. Like I, I kind of feel like, you know, going back to, you know, my immunology days where we were looking at, you know, what causes asthma and there's always this hot debate around, you know, whether you should put your kids in the dirt, like what it, what is that actually doing? And I think gone are the days where it's like, oh, my God, don't, you know, don't put kids near dirt because, you know, they're going to get allergies. But, in fact, it's the opposite. We need to start exposing them to those allergens very early on so their immune system receives the allergens and and goes yep this is okay we're okay before their mature immune system kind of is is established um, absolutely this yeah. is the microflora hypothesis so we've gone from the hygiene hypothesis to yeah. the microflora which is you need that that children pregnant women need to be exposed to diverse bacteria using chemicals and sanitizers like i'd love to see any research on pregnant women who were excessive with their sanitizer use during covid mm. yeah, you know and pregnant to the risk for asthma and allergies of their 
unborn ch- with their children later on in life because it's That's it's contrary amazing. to what the literature is actually saying. Yeah, they need the more diverse the gut microbiome is, the more you better your he- mental health and your overall physical health. Well, it seems to be the same with the house. The more diverse the bacteria is, the healthier the home is. So we have to, the big part of the work we do as building biologists is retrain people's understanding of what a healthy home is. It's dry and it's diverse with bacteria um, based on the bacteria normally found in soil ecology, for example. And prebiotics is important. So, you know, the light, the temperature, just like diet, you know, breast milk is important. We're finding probiotics is not necessarily a good thing because it's a shifting the type of bacteria in the gut. And a lot of the doctors I interviewed say they see a lot of people with IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, after long-term use of probiotics because what you want to do is seed the gut with good prebiotics to feed the commensal bacteria. You don't want to be start shifting the amount of, you know, taking one probiotic full of, you know, saccharomyces, et cetera, and then changing the whole microbiome within the gut. Um, That's such a good point. And I think we've we've spoken about microbiome and gut health and things like that previously in the podcast. And I just wanted to highlight to the listeners that when you're looking at probiotics, what you've got to understand is that it's a single tablet with typically like one to three strains of bacteria. So they're individual strains. And you know, as we touched on before, depending on your genetics and what you've consumed previously in your life, you are going to be made up of your microbiome is made up of a diversification of different bacteria. And so if you then start populating with and just hammering with just one to three of those strains, you're going to change it completely. And to your point, Nicole, it's the diversification that is so, so important to a healthy gut. Um, I, I, don't, I could. Yeah, is passionate about toxins and plastics and things. I'm just like, for the <laughs> love of God, and I'm doing it. Stop drinking your cult, okay? Oh my gosh! Can I just <laughs> say something on that? When I was doing my science degree, I did a double major in genetics and physiology, and in the genetics lab, uh, no, I did a microbiology minor. Microbiology professor said that the strains of bacteria in your cult, you called, were you in the same class? We uh, we were absolutely <laughs> in the same class. I know I was there. I was there. And he was saying how they're just like the worst strains in the world. There's worst. no benefits. They're actually like, weren't they related to like feces or something? They were just like non helpful bacteria, but the yeah. marketing yes, so clever. Uh huh. And I think that, yeah. Oh, my God, I would never take it either. I think so many. And it was full of sugar, which supported your yeast in the body. Exactly, and that's the only reason why it tasted so delicious. And speaking of marketing, because I'm going to get on my high horse about this, and this is one of the things that really panicked me about COVID, not the actual COVID itself, but I started to really panic about the overuse of sanitizer and people freaking out about germs, and I'm using quotation marks here for all those listening at home, because I saw this massive shift around, you know, you would walk down the aisles of the supermarket and you would see online, you know, when you're doing grocery shopping, things like disposable gloves sold out, antimicrobial and antibacterial sponges sold out, antibacterial chopping boards sold out. I am just like, the biggest ranter about the use, overuse of things like antibiotics and things like that in your home, it's like, oh, my God, people, we are breeding a world where we are just like breeding superbugs, you know? Like you've got to have a healthy balance of, Absolutely. of, of things in your house. Oh, man. There's more bacteria in your body than there are human cells by I don't know how many magnitude, order yeah. of magnitude. Our mitochondria was derived from bacteria through the maternal yes. side. Like we are bacteria. So when you're using sanitizers, you're killing yourself. You're killing life. Yeah. This is the thing. And we've, this propaganda started in the 50s and 60s with women, what's a healthy home, et cetera, and it was false. And this whole thing, like um, there's a place for sanitizers, et cetera, in hospital setting. Sure, like that. sure but not in a home and I'm really and you know against that because what the literature is actually seeing saying when you look at it as to who's healthy 
is people who are diverse bacteria. So I think my hypothesis is that the more diverse the bacteria is in the house, that's also just as important as breastfeeding, vaginal birth, all that stuff, because children have very high hand-to-mouth ratios. So a significant Mm -hmm. proportion of the gut microbiome might actually be what they're ingesting in the household dust or floor. Yes. I think, yeah, no, absolutely. I just think the use of sanitizers in kids in childcare settings and school settings in the last few years, I'm terrified to think of the research that's going to come out of that and how that Uh, might negatively impact their health moving forward. And I hope that we can, as a society, shift away from that. I hate sanitizer. Mm. But the other one that's antibacterial, the big one, is pesticides. Many pesticides are used as preservatives in women's care, women's moisturisers and personal care products. This is why you need to take your shoes off before you come in because the pesticides are already all out there. Take your shoes off, otherwise you track them into the house, onto the floor, and, of course, the child's breathing zone is right there. Mm. They're absorbing that. Pesticides of all the chemicals that concern me when I wrote my first paper on environmental chemicals and their impact on health, pesticides came up for neurodevelopmental disorders like autism and ADHD and neurodegenerative disorders at the other end, Parkinson's and dementia. Like pesticides are antibacterial, they're anti-human. These are the big ones. So for a healthy home, if you've got fly spray, if you've got any insecticides, throw it out. It is probably the most toxic chemicals you can have in the home. They affect the central nervous system. They act on acetylcholinesterase. They affect muscle transmission. They are incredibly toxic. And unfortunately, with the changes in farming practices in the 50s and 60s, it, it exposed our generation, my generation in the 60s, to very, very high levels of pesticides, which are being passed on to multiple generations because they're lipophilic, they go through the placenta, they pass through the breast milk, and they have a very long half-life. Most of Melbourne was an orchard. DDT is still breaking down in the soils. So this is why pesticides in the house, you should not have any fly sprays or insecticides or anything like that because that is the number one chemical that is going to be really toxic to you and your kids. Mm. Oh, wow. That's um, that's a good, really important message to get out there. We do not have fly spray and I have yelled at other family members when we're in their homes and they go to use it. So not near my kids. Thank you very much. But I think... You know, if you haven't been aware of these things in the past, that's fine. All we can do is get our awareness increased and make the best decisions we can moving forward. I think when you're talking about cleaning products as well, getting back to basics, we do use your amazing cleaning products in our home, Nicole, about cleaning because they are natural and they are very trusted and I'm not trying to sell them. I'm just saying I have researched cleaning products that tell me that they're clean and they market to me that they're clean I have done the research and it's just so nice using a proper brand that I can can trust completely and do not need to research thoroughly so it's like you you've made you've made products sorry I'm new to this tell me you're holding out on us what is tell me give me the the ingredients My ex and I created the brand, Abode Cleaning Products brand, and I use them, but I haven't been affiliated with the brand for three years because when we went through the divorce, he took that on. He's an industrial chemist. Okay. And um, amazing products. They were specifically designed because we had kids with eczema and, and allergies, so they're amazing, and I use them and, you know, up until recently sold them as well. But, uh, yeah, I'm not affiliated with the brand anymore, but I definitely, you know, highly recommend them because, you know, we sold our house to create this brand not realising that we couldn't get the ingredients, so we had to sell the house to to be able to source all the ingredients from all over the world. Yeah. So what, repeat it again. What's the brand called? Abode. 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 And where can we purchase those? Um, online or health food stores. Yeah. You'll be able to get them from, etc. cetera, yeah. Okay. So I'll use the surface sprays, the laundry liquids, the dish liquids, they're the ones I mainly use, mm-hmm. yeah. I think I love your honesty because you talked about, I think, in the range, and we'll get off it in a second, there's washing like detergent fresheners what's what I'm looking for fabric softeners fabric softeners and you saying even in your own range you don't use them no I'm not using fabric softeners no because you need to and I just I actually just love that it wasn't like a sell 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 like we've got them in the range you need to get them it's like no it's not a necessary I I don't need a fabric softener it's such a it's a you need a product because you've been marketed the product but they are excellent and they do work um so that's always good to know but I think we're actually getting to the end of our time with you, Nicole, and there are so many topics that we haven't touched on just yet. So I would love to get you back on another time, which we can talk about later, but 
so much good information in there already. I think just bringing an awareness to how our homes can impact our health and I think an awareness to what we're using. And I think when you say taking your shoes off as you come in is such a great thing in terms of stopping things coming into your house, but maybe also starting to think about the products you do bring in in terms of personal care and cleaning for you and your children, I think is something to be really mindful of as well. But I, we used to live over in Canada and shoes off over there was like a standard thing. I feel Mm. like it's such a normal thing. And I've had to really like stand my ground by saying shoes off in our home. And it made sense to me before I even understood the full ramifications of it, because we have young children who are crawling on the floor, tummy time, right near the carpet. And I don't need to add people's whatever on their shoes to come in either. It's such a simple, effective thing you can do. And it's actually lovely. I think it's, it's a tone for when you it's come into the home. I think so too, but it's not, it's not normal, I would say, here in Australia. No, it's certainly not. No. Uh, I worked with a girl um, at my previous employer and she she's German and she was, like, telling me when she came to Australia that it was just, like, she could not believe people were wearing shoes inside other people's houses. And she was like, what is going on here? And I was like, I don't know. What do you, what do you mean? She was like, Renee, like seriously, how can you walk into something? Like you've just walked the streets and you've, you're walking into people's homes with everything on your shoes. And I was like, oh, I hadn't actually really thought about that. Like I probably, it was kind of shoes off at our house because my mum was just a complete nutter about <laughs> being a clean freak. But I don't think my mum was thinking about like pesticides and things like that. She was just like, I don't want any dirt in the house, people. Like, <laughs> you know, type of thing. But yeah, I think I think it's um, really interesting. Nika, do you, do you want to do a rapid fire at the end? I do, but they're all like long, big, I don't have rapid fire. I've just got like hours more of conversation I want to have with you, Nicole. But I have a couple of rapid fire questions, I think. Being, I think probably being a newbie. Oh, I'll go yeah, next, go. sorry, because we did get a question on Instagram. Yes, yes. Can we do that first? Yes, go for it. But Nicole, we just put a yell out and someone did ask us a question. And you touched on it earlier in terms of walking past the fragrances in the department store might affect some people. So someone's written in saying, are there specific essential oils or fragrances to avoid with little ones? Essential oils are very highly concentrated aspects of the plant. So the liver doesn't go, gee, you're an essential oil, you're natural, so you can go this way through detoxification and you're a phthalate from a pharmaceutical company or an industry that way. It's toxic. Essential oils... um, So the way I would use essential oils, because I love them, is I vaporise them in the house, especially if the kids are sick or respiratory and you get some eucalyptus, lemon myrtle, whatever. But I would not have the essential oils in close proximity to the children because they're highly, they're developed by the plant as an antifungal. Do you know what I mean? They have very strong antiseptic. And, you know, what's natural? Asbestos is natural. Uranium is natural. So I think we need to get rid of this term natural. Essential oils are great for as an antibacterial to get rid of anti-stick. But my concern with the essential oils, especially in the use of cleaning, is like eucalyptus and tea tree, et cetera, is that they can dissolve petrochemicals like waterproof membranes and compromise and increase the risk of mould in a bathroom if you start spraying them. So I would be, I use them to vaporise to create a nice atmosphere and ambience in the house, but I don't generally use them in the bathrooms for cleaning and I don't tend to use them neat either. So near babies and children, their livers are still developing. I don't think they should be near the kids. And fragrances in general as well, you would say. Oh, kids don't need fragrances. Well, I use essential oils as my perfume, so it's diluted in jojoba oil. So I have rose damask in jojoba, and that's my perfume that I wear, and it's diluted in oils, and I wear that pretty much every day, and I use it on my skin. But, you know, I'm post-menopause woman in going into my crone years, so I'm not a reproductive age. <laughs> but kids, some of these are endocrine-disrupting chemicals too, and things like clove is very toxic. I mean, that's why it, it depresses the central nervous system and it numbs your gums because it's killing off the nerves temporarily for toothache. Jeez. You know, so clove is something I do not use. It's very toxic. But, yes, look, I love my essential oils, but they are, the liver still has to detox them and they shouldn't be used on children. Thank you so much for clearing that up. I think there is that misconception with something being natural and being good. Can I ask in terms of when you are diffusing them, does the quality of the essential oil matter? 
Yes, absolutely. So you don't want fragrant oils that are full of phthalates, which are hormone-disrupting chemicals, which are a disaster. You want a pure essential oil. So, you know, it's um, the quality is is as good as it can be, basically, that it's just derived from the essence. It's not diluted. There's no synthetics that are added to it or petrochemicals or phthalates and things like that. It's just pure essential oils. Always buy the best oils. I mean, as I said, I love my essential oils. I did study aromatherapy, but I am very cautious of um, not using them neat unless it's eucalyptus to get rid of, you know, sticky stuff or whatever because, you know, but the liver still has to detox them. Mm, yeah. So true. Um, I think it's, oh my gosh, I would love to get you back on to talk about fragrances another time as well, because that's another topic close to my heart. And again, I'm just going to say very briefly, when we were in Montreal, in Canada, you know, we would often go to like even, you know, a group setting or whatever it might be. And they would say in the email, fragrance-free environment, you know, I know the hospitals, particularly the midwifery, like the midwife, the birthing suites and all of those postnatal things with women were fragrance-free it was such a normal thing over there not to have fragrances and as someone who is very reactive to fragrances I think until you realize that it's you know I used to sit on the bus going to the Alfred Hospital when I was a researcher there and someone at the other end of the bus would have perfume on and I would be sneezing and have tears in my eyes all day like it was really hard to function around those chemicals so I'm a very anti-fragrance person I hate perfume I hate fragrance in general and I've dived a little bit into it but I think these are really important things to be thinking. Absolutely what Professor Anne Steinman from the University of Melbourne has done quite a bit of research on this and, and identified one in three people react adversely to perfume in Australia and end up with headaches or migraine headaches etc and, and some of the symptoms you mentioned perfumes contain can contain phthalates which enable them to last for hundreds of years I don't know why you buy a perfume that's going to last hundreds of years when you're, you're not going to be there and these phthalates are hormone disruptors that are now linked to endocrine disrupting disorders like uterine cancers breast cancers especially they're very problematic so artificial air fresheners any artificial perfumes in aftershave perfume should be avoided at all costs especially if you've got young kids especially if you're pregnant you know, using any form of moisturiser that has a perfume in it, it's going to get absorbed dermally through the skin and it's going to get through into the placenta. And there's a lot of data now on EDCs, endocrine disrupting chemicals, and their ramifications for men's sperm count, morphology, prostate cancers, uterine cancers, and, of course, the big one is breast cancer. It annoys me a lot of the data on breast cancer is funding drug companies for drugs as opposed to getting to the environmental root causes of breast cancers, which now affect one in eight Australian women, which is extraordinary. It's the most common cancer in women. I think it's the fifth most common cancer overall globally, and it's horrific, the amount of women that will be impacted by breast cancer. And a lot of this is seems to be coming back to hormone-disrupting chemicals. Vinyl, vinyl flooring the house contains phthalates there's some research on that on breast cancer so you don't want any vinyl products in the house you know vinyl flooring like they have in hospitals etc because they're phthalates which can contain uh which can be hormone disruptors perfume is the big one so that's a good one perfume plastics like polystyrene and pvc and of course phthalates the three p's get rid of those in the house and it'll be healthier Oh, oh my gosh, gosh, that sounds amazing. And yeah, we do not need that colourful stuff in the toilet to make it smell nice. That is not <laughs> none of this stuff is essential. And why do men miss? Why do they urinate on the seat and around the edges? Like for God's sake, the hole is this freaking big. Please <laughs> that big. Like just, they can't mix it and it annoys me. It annoys me too. Oh um, my goodness. Thank you. Well, on that note, I think I, I was going to say, so I think. Oh, sorry, Renee, you had your question. No, that's okay. I think I'm really thankful, Nicole, because I was tossing up whether to remove the carpet in my house or keep it. And I think the decision's been made for me that I need to get rid of it and put rugs in. But equally, I feel like I need to go upstairs and get rid of, not that we use it regularly, because I am a bit annoyed about the fly spray thing, but we do have it on. Um, standby if there's a giant big spider perhaps Um, but in wrapping up are you happy to just do a quick couple of rapid fire questions Nicole? Go for it. Um, What is your go-to resource if someone wants to start learning a bit more about this topic of you know toxins and having a healthier home? Well, look, I'll be biased, but it's my book. Yeah, <laughs> like it. go like, for it, girl. <laughs> very simple tips, etc. And my website's got some good videos there as well, buildingbiology.com.au. 
Yeah, Amazing. lots of great free resources there. Definitely check it out. And what do you keep on your bedside table? About seven books mm. uh, that I've got there and my battery-operated clock radio. Battery-operated? Oh, I love that you said that. <laughs> <laughs> Quickly, what, what book are you reading right now? Oh, I'm reading Conversations with God. That's okay. my favourite book of all time. That's amazing. It's not a religious book. It's You've just got to read it. It's beautiful. Okay. So they've got a few volumes there. I'm reading Toxic. Mm-hmm. Um, what's his name? You get an American researcher. What else am I reading? Uh, I can't remember. It's I, I read a few books at the same time. Yeah, I'm the same. Mika <laughs> and I were talking about that earlier. I'm, I'm a book bouncer as well. Yeah. We've oh. run out of time before we've run out of topics always. Mika? Oh my God, I'm just, yes, thank you. <laughs> oh, where to start? We didn't get to the plastics and baby bottles. The kids, but I would love to come back to come and back. follow up another time and sort of talk about products and just put a little PSA out now with the fragrances. Hopefully, no one is using talcum powder with babies. Another unneeded yes. product, just quickly. I can't not say that, but we would love to have you back on and pick that amazing brain of yours and all that you have achieved and all that you are doing to bring awareness and do the actual research that is needed to do to highlight the importance of these issues. And we are so excited that you're about to finish your PhD. Yeah. Oh, my God. (laughs) Such a huge achievement. And we'd love to hear more about the research that comes out of that. Perhaps we can get you on once that's been done and, and talk further. But it's been such a pleasure. And I think it's really hopefully raised people's awareness to being their homes as healthy as possible. And there are simple steps. I would definitely recommend checking out her Nicole's website as a great starting point and yeah thank you for your time today thank you so much it was fun if you loved this episode please hit the subscribe button and leave a review if you know someone out there who would also love to listen to this episode please hit the share button so they can benefit from it as well thank you for listening to the science of motherhood we'll see you next time bye thank you for listening to the science of motherhood if you would like to contact us we are at ifillyourcup.com or you can DM us at ifillyourcup underscore via Instagram. You can find all of our services including our postpartum in-home care and our fill your freezer meal delivery service as well through both those channels. Thanks so much for listening.